All right, welcome everyone. Uh, this is the, the continuation of our podcast series with Paula Sage and Scott Griffith. And today we're starting uh, the first in what we have uh, described over the years as the sequence of reliability. Uh, and this is gonna be a fun one, Paul, because um, it's a non-trivial uh, step. It's actually the first step in the sequence, uh, see and understand risk. And uh, what we've decided to do two podcasts on this one because it's going to take that amount of time to, to cover cover it. Um, before we can even describe how we see and understand, we first have to center the discussion on what do we mean when we use the word risk. Well, you know, that's I guess that really depends on the individual and the organization. I mean, I always see risk as something that puts our our values. Uh, in, in, in a threat toward our values in some way. And I think people have this perception that all risk is bad. And one of the things we can be discussing too is, you know, how risk can be a good thing if it's managed correctly. There's no way to not have risk in our lives. So I usually see risk as something that people perceive that threatens a value that they hold. Uh, what, what's your thoughts? Well, it's interesting. We use the word value, and you and I have talked about that for, for years. You know, as we got into the healthcare space, um, there was a huge amount of attention given to patient safety, and yet uh, there were other values that always come into play, patient privacy, for example. And oh, by the way, patient privacy has only relatively recently become a prime value. Uh, when you and I were growing up, we didn't notice, you know, the, 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 the privacy value much, uh, we would put it in the newspaper when uh, Uncle Joe would go into the hospital or we'd talk about it. Uh, but but today we, we care deeply about the value of privacy. And, and another value that's that's surfaced here in recent times um, that's getting equal attention is equity. Uh, we see a lot of organizations that show a disparate treatment between different racial and socioeconomic groups. So you're right. When, when we describe risk, we have to understand um, what it is we're describing. Now, I've, over the past few months, you and I have had many discussions about the term values. So I've shied away from that term because uh, when we go into an organization, the first thing they tell us is, oh, we have our mission, vision, values statement. And, and I looked at one hospital and they, when I counted them up, they had about 52 values. And, and that, Very that's valuable all. hospital. Yeah, it's almost, well, they value innovation, they value education, they value, and, and those are those are nice things that help you achieve certain goals. Uh, and we're not trying to uh, cast dispersion on, on the term value, but a word that, that we started to use in our um, collaboration with DNB Healthcare was, what are the organizational attributes of highly reliable organization? And we, we looked at them and there's really typically a, a small number, five, six perhaps, uh, that you can point to that we would measure an organization uh, around their reliability. Um, and, and one of those values, by the way, is infrastructure and part of infrastructure is cybersecurity. So regardless of what kind of business you're in, if you depend on IT services and technology, if you're hacked and you get shut down, Everything else you, it impacts everything else you do. 
So risk is a rather large term, but where we started our, our business, um, it was really specifically to help organizations. And we're going to do a, a follow-on podcast around uh, individual perception and risk intelligence and how that relates to how the organization sees risk. But when we go into to work with any organization, we have to understand what is it they value? What would we d- use as a measurement to define them as being highly reliable or not highly reliable. And then we, 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 we move into the realm of, well, how do we see and understand it? And you and I both have a sort of a, a, a distaste in our mouth for the traditional way that organizations see risk and that is they investigate accidents. Well, yeah, and it's all human centered. Um, you know, when you first start analyzing risk events, you know, people say they look at systems and they do identify system things, but they always are doing the human side of it on the down low, like on the side, what we're really doing is trying to get rid of Paul because he crashed an ambulance twice or he did this. So, um, and and I think part of it is because, you know, there's a lot of conversation about why is that? Why is there this hard focus on the human instead of looking at all the other factors that are contributive? And I think part of this is, the, the legal system is built so strongly on personal responsibility. And you and I can make the same choice. You and I can develop the same risk per profile. And you and I can choose the same thing. And we can have drastically different outcomes. And since the legal uh, profession really bases everything that they're going to do to us on what the outcome was, not on the quality of the choice or what system we were working in, that that goes over into the human resources department and most of the the people that i've met in that area they they're a lot of their focus justifiably so is on the legal ramifications of hiring and firing and managing human beings and of course that's based on our our legal tenants so what you have is is people focusing really really hard on the human component every time we analyze a risk event and and while we both agree that of the things in the sequence, human is critical, particularly the performance and behavior part. We also saw that it's backwards, that, that focusing on the human first tends to produce these tremendous biases and it's really not helping. That's a great point, Paul. And, and that does speak to um, the terminology that comes out of the legal system. And that has made its way into human resources, policies and documents. And you're right, the, the legal system, whether it be the criminal system or the, 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 the civil tort system, it's, it's all around proximity to harm. In most instances in, in court, you don't even get into court without showing evidence of harm of some type. And you and I both know that's a pretty poor way to manage risk, waiting for something harmful to take place. But that has migrated into organizations where they you know, initially, most of the information that organizations have collected over the years was uh, about around events or, or event-based reporting systems, which indicate some threshold uh, has crossed. Something bad happened that caused harm. Anything short of that typically wouldn't be reported. And we, 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 we've created this bias that came out of the, the, the legal system that said, we're going to hold people accountable without the full understanding of the systems in place at the time and how those systems may have influenced the individual or not been resilient enough to prevent the accident. So all of that, that creates that, that inherent implicit bias that we think exists today inside organizations. So that led me um, 
in, in aviation to, to being frustrated at a very young age that the way our regulator, uh, the FAA was focused, what had been had drawn from uh, experiences investigating crashes. And it, it was like, well, we, we put all this time, effort and money into learning the way the plane crashed yesterday, but we didn't have the ability to see the other ways the plane might crash tomorrow. Uh, in fact, all of our, our uh, accountability systems, if you will, the regulations were centered around the human and rules and, and policies, not necessarily seeing the, the, the full picture, the socio-technical picture of how systems relate to individuals. Well, and I think that's one of the things that makes the work that we're doing so fascinating, Scott, is you had a sentinel role in helping the airline industry with the ASAP program and, and evolve into a process that actually looks beyond the individual or beyond the organization. And we, I know we're going to talk a little about the individual on in our next podcast, but when we take an organizational perception of risk and we, we think about it in the context of the policy manual, what's there. And, and I like to use, so let's just take firefighting, which you know I did for 30 years. Whenever a firefighter died, not to cast aspersions, but they, NIOSH comes in and, and does an investigation into why the firefighter died. And OSHA will often do it too. And, and I, I tell people that the NIOSH reports were worthless to me because they're very, very, they're very detailed. And they're, and, but what they, their summary is always the same thing. These are the policies that they should have in place. They should have had better communications. They should have had an accountability system. They should have had X, they should have had Y. And then the recommendations is write and support a policy on this, write and support a policy on that. But they never ever mentioned why the organization didn't have these things in place. What, what were the failures? Could they not afford some of this stuff? Did they not have a training budget? Did they not? There was never anything in there beyond what the human expectations were. So for me, those reports, I stopped reading them a long time ago because they didn't provide me with anything, but it was like the same plane crash, Scott, over and over again, right? You just read the same thing. Well, it's pilot error. And, and after a while, you're like, well, we should get different pilots. I mean, if they keep crashing these planes, it's the same with firefighters. It's like, well, all these people failed in their communications. And that, to me, many of our organizations we walk into are still, their basis of determining or understanding risk is still baked into a policy manual around human expectations. Yeah, that, that speaks to, uh, when I was growing up, I wanted to learn how to fly and I asked my dad and, and he, uh, he subscribed to the NTSB's accident reports and he literally brought in a stack of NTSB accident reports that was a waist, waist high to an adult. And he said, read these first. And I thought, wow. So I got into it and, and, and I asked dad, I said, well, why is it that they come up with something called the probable cause? And it always seems to resolve, revolve around the pilot. And, and, you know, I came to the conclusion myself over the years that all accidents are, are human error because Humans were engaged in the design, the manufacture, the operation. At some level, humans were, of course, that's the socio-technical part of it. But uh, it does illustrate a cultural and societal bias. We, particularly in, in, in industries that aren't engineering-based, like healthcare, for example, uh, you know, the science of medicine is very different than the science of aviation and engineering. And so... To, to see those two in tandem, to be able to, to, to unravel it 
and then look at it in a, in a sequence uh, is, is, is quite the challenge. Although the work that we do, Paul, I, I, I often think that the sequence of reliability is just so simple um, and so basic, if you will, my kids would call it basic, that, that it, and I get embarrassed sometimes. I'll be speaking and I'll put it up and I'll say, this is 35 years of my life. And when you look at it, you're gonna say, well, sure, Scott, you have an intuitive grasp of the obvious, but it's not the way most organizations actually perform. Uh, well, I they, think this first question that we're debating today is the most nuanced and complex one. I think people can understand systems and human performance and behavior and organizational reliability when you describe it. But the risk part, particularly on the organizational level, is always been a conundrum. You know, exactly how do they see it? And, and, and culturally, we're aiming people in the wrong direction with this in so many different places. For instance, the entire healthcare organization that continues to hammer and hammer and hammer on never events, those types of things, they fail to really understand the difference between an expectation and an aspiration. I mean, I'm certain the airline industry aspires to never have any crashes, but they certainly don't expect zero crashes because they, they really understand the socio-technical nature of engineering. Everything has a failure rate. Every human has a failure rate, whether you're brewing coffee or driving a car or doing brain surgery and every piece of equipment you're using. It's like when people say, well, we did an FMEA. I said, but FMEAs were designed for toasters, not for humans. The FMEA on the toaster never said, when is Scott gonna stick a fork in it to get his bagel out, <laughs> right? And so the point I'm trying to make is organizations are so focused on what they don't want to have happen that they're really not analyzing deeply what risks they're taking every single day, right? Right, and, and that, that speaks to public perception and, and no organization wants to stand up and say, this percentage of accidents is acceptable, but, but that's really the reality that you have to understand if you're going to manage it. I remember this was after the, uh, the value jet crash, I believe around 1995-ish, you know, I'm getting- Yeah, the one in the swamp, yeah. Yeah, and, and so after that, the industry convened a, an industry conference, and I, I'll never forget this because uh, that's when I first met Federico Pena, who was then the Department of Transportation Secretary, and then Dave Henson, the FAA administrator. And what was interesting about that was um, uh, Secretary Pena stood up and said, the only acceptable accident rate in the United States is zero. Zero is the only acceptable rate. And there were maybe 2,000 people in the audience. So we all looked at each other with our jaws dropped and thought, well, how are we going to achieve that? And then David Henson got up to speak. And th this, this became a personal moment for, he, for me because he had this speech written and uh, it was all typed out and it was on the podium and, and he took it literally and said, you know, I have a speech prepared. And then he just threw it, threw it down on the floor and said, but here's what I want to say. What the secretary meant to say was we will, <laughs> we will commit to an 80% reduction over the next 10 years. And that, and that was a challenge. You know, all, all the pilots and engineers and in the, in the audience were willing to accept, okay, there's a target. But, but quickly we, we, we realized, or I did anyway, that we weren't gonna get there invest, investigating accidents. And, and so this metaphor that, that we have adopted, Paul, as sort of a, uh, an icon or emblem of our company is the iceberg. Accidents are, are a, the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, inspections, audits, uh, those types of activities, what, what you refer to is oftentimes is a right of bang. It's, it's too late. It's after something bad has happened. If we're going to manage risk, 
we have to dive below the surface and get a, a fuller picture. And that, that brings us to the, the term seeing and understanding. When we see, uh, well, when we learn about an adverse outcome, the first question we should be looking at is, you know, what's the, the, the current threat to the organization and to the individuals? Is it existing still? Is there something out there that could continue to harm? So we, we mitigate that immediately. But then we step back and say, is this a representation of the full picture of a risk or is it merely just the tip of the iceberg? How deep do we have to go to, to manage this? Yeah, and you know, Scott, tragically, there's so many uh, examples today everywhere. If you look, you, know, you don't even have to look hard. You just take, you know, recently prior, few weeks prior to this podcast, the collapse of the building in Florida, the tragic collapse with all the deaths. And, and, you know, notice that the news is really focused on, we need to find out who was responsible. It's all about who, who was responsible. Was, it the, was yeah. it the, was it the committee that was supposed to fix it? Was it the engineer? Was it the people who built it? We need to find out. And, and I feel like, I feel like that the society's desire to find out who was responsible and the organization's desire to pin it on a human is about projecting this thing that if we can just find out who did this, we're, the rest of us are safe. So instead of this concept of like yeah. that, that building that collapsed is very likely the tip of the iceberg, right? I, I mean, there, there's, there's, that's probably representative of what's going on at condo associations, not just throughout Florida, but everywhere. And, and so when you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, that's just the tip of the iceberg event, as tragic as it is. And media is all about, well, who did it? Right. And this is going to lead us in, well, we could do a really full, uh, we could do an entire series of podcasts on that event. That's, that's a perfect example. As we, as we get into diving into how we use the reliability response guide, you'll notice that we talk about competing priorities early on. So imagine you're living in a condominium in South Florida, and what's the aim of, of the homeowners association? To keep dues assessments low. And so you move in, you buy a property, you don't want to buy in where you're paying expensive homeowners association, but you can't see and understand the structural risk inherent in the building. All yeah, you know yeah, because like my son was looking at condos and we were looking for, and you know, one of the major things we're looking at is like, Absolutely. I said, drive through and see if they've got new roofs and new siding and like, right. I mean, because you don't know if you're going to get an assessment, right? I mean, that you could double your monthly payment just through an assessment. And, and that's a risk, right? And those are, but all we see is the risk of the collapse. Right. So here's another example, uh, just so we don't overemphasize uh, healthcare, which you and I feel very strongly about. And we spend, I guess, the majority of our time in the healthcare space today. Uh, but here's another current event that made the news last year and is still, people are still wrestling with. And that was the um, uh, George Floyd uh, murder. And, and when you look at that police officer, Derek Chauvin, the fact that he was uh, convicted in court of multiple counts of, of criminal assault and murder uh, was the tip of the iceberg. That, that was after a right of bang. What we, we know when we go back and look retrospectively is that wasn't the first time he had been, uh, had used excessive force. So when we employ strategies such as body cameras and dashboard cameras in police vehicles, we shouldn't just look at those, the tapes of those videos when things go wrong. We should be looking at them every day to see where the trends are. Those are the things that take time and resources to do. 
but most organizations tend to, to, to not even look at the camera until it triggers an event. And you've hit on something that I think is really important and we've emphasized in our collaborative risk review process that we developed, which is, you know, most of these educational things for police officers and firefighters and others are always focused on showing you the video of what not to do or what went wrong, but they're not real heavy on showing you video of really good encounters. And, or we don't listen to CBRs or, you know, the flight deck recorders of flights that went perfectly well to find out like how well, you know, when I was writing the book for the career resource management, you know, we were trying to dive into that and say, what we really need to hear is conversations where things went really well, not where things went wrong. Well, the, yeah, there's two schools of thoughts on that. There's the old uh, one about the economist in the World War II that was looking at down bombers that had been shot over in uh, Europe had been shot at and those that had made made it their way back. And he looked at the, 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 the spray pattern of the bullets that had, uh, that had uh, because the engineers were looking for ways to reinforce the, the fuselage and the fuel tanks to prevent explosions and keep the plane uh, resilient. And the economist said, we're looking at the planes that made it back. We should be looking at the planes that got shot down. And so there's two schools of thought there. Do we look at the things that go right or the things that go wrong? Interestingly, when you mentioned the, 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 what's typically referred to as the black boxes, uh, and, and actually for our listeners, they're not black, they're day glow orange. I, I had a right. poignant experience with that on a mountain in County Columbia years ago. But um, the, 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 we, we, we had a turning point after that, that crash in the Everglades, and I mentioned to you the conference we held, where we started looking at data that could become precursor to the adverse outcome. And uh, so in programs like ASAP, which are designed to collect information from the human perspective uh, before things go catastrophic. And then on the digital side for the systems, we have a collection program that's still prominent today called FOCA, Flight Operations Quality Assurance, where we started looking at digital readouts before the plane crash, and not just the black box readouts, but looking at those trigger uh, conditions long before. And the combination of ASAP providing the human, perhaps biased perspective, and the digital, uh, perhaps biased perspective, when you blend those together, you see a more complete picture of risk below the surface long before anything happens, long before the plane crashes. So for a Derek Chauvin or a police officer or firefighter, if we could see those patterns in the chaos every day, because a lot of times we get successful outcomes with very risky systems and very risky patterns of performance and behavior. Well, well, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to, you know, send to our clients from a message standpoint is, you know, aviation, you know, most of those of you, Scott, who are involved in it wouldn't say it's highly reliable yet, you know, from a standpoint, what you'd say is they're on a journey and, and, and right. they're farther on the journey probably than a lot of other people are. But when you look at their perception as they're coming into this, returning to the risk conversation, um, organizations want to do what I say is the easy thing. So when we focus on the human, it's so much easier than focusing on these sort of what they feel are nebulous concepts of risk. And I'm going to mention the lunch bag story because I think it's an interesting concept <laughs> of like, you know, there was a major hospital I went into to have a conversation right. about our methodology. And I walked through the whole concept of like right. how it works. And, and, and one of the, one of the people in the room said, 
that's too complicated. I, I like to focus just on an algorithm approach. And I said, well, give me an example. And she said, well, what if my daughter and I pick up the wrong lunch bag in the morning? So I pick up a lunch bag and she picks up a lunch bag. And is that a duty to you know, follow a procedure, a duty to produce an outcome? And I can go through this algorithmic approach and I can determine whether me picking up the wrong lunch bag was an error or whether it was at risk. And I said, that's fascinating if what you want to do is punish your daughter for picking up the wrong lunch bag. I said, but what's the risk? And, and she said, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And, and I said, what if your daughter picked up your lunch bag and she has an allergy and she could have died from eating something or opening up your lunch bag? I mean, what's the risk associated with getting the wrong? Maybe there's no risk. You had exactly the same bag. What if you put a system in place where you each had a different colored lunch bag? Then we didn't even have to get to the behavioral component because you'd know that yours is the red lunch bag. I mean, these are the sorts of things that when you think of it from the risk perspective and how that risk informs the system that you're going to build, instead of just focusing on the human, this is where organizations continue to fail because, you know, they're really all about this retrospective analysis if you picked up the wrong bag instead of what's the risk of doing that and what system do you have to manage it? Yeah, Paul, that's exactly right. And, and you know, you look at um, the, the societal bias toward behavior without fully understanding those performance shaping factors that influence behavior, without fully understanding the systems that influence performance and behavior. We're, we're working our way backward. And it comes back to, well, what is the risk? Because the things you would do to prevent uh, that type of adverse outcome on a lunch bag would depend on how important is that activity? Is it something that needs to be in a rigorous system like we would have in chemotherapy uh, or administration? Or is it something less risky that we can accept a, a have a different tolerance for that risk? And then, of course, I know in our next podcast, we'll talk about how organizations set that those tolerances and how that differs from individuals. But it all comes back to how, how do we define risk and how do, then do we see it and understand it? Because I contend that we can only manage that which we see and understand. And those, each of those words matters because I can see something but not fully appreciate or understand it. And, or I can appreciate it and understand it, but if I can't see it, take, for example, the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The, the World Health Organization made the false assumption that it would spread similar to other coronaviruses and that it would be droplets in contact, not recognizing the aerosolization of those viruses and how those could spread. So they didn't, they understood that that you can get you can get the, the infection by certain me mechanisms, but we couldn't see it, we couldn't measure it. So we didn't know precisely how it would how it would propagate. So the consequence of that was the things we did down line, whether they were systems or managing people, we got we got less than optimal outcomes. More people got infected, more people died than was necessary because we didn't fully see and understand it. Well, and there's a perfect example of what we're talking about when we look at societal and organizational risk before we dive down to why individuals do what they do. You know, you think about like 100% or 98% of the focus in 2020 was on um, the risk associated with COVID uh, and transmission and the pandemic. And there was very little attention being paid to the financial risk and the, and, the, and the emotional risks of being isolated and the financial risk of shutting the economy down. And, you know, because 
if you did, you were shouted down. So, so, you know, I mean, certainly this transmission and the deaths and all that represented a massive risk. But I think there was a whole lot of other risks, these other what we call competing values or competing priorities that we didn't anticipate or we didn't appreciate maybe as much in different areas. You had people that were all about locking down. You had people who were all about opening up. And somewhere in the middle was probably a nuanced version of like, how do we actually manage all these risks simultaneously? And, um, and, and I think that there's, you don't have to look far to see these types of examples of people getting into a camp around what their risk perception is or their concept of risk rather than looking at it in a more broadly term, broader term, right? So what, what are all the values or uh, you know, organizational principles at risk and how do we try to balance all these at the same time? Is a, it's a hard conversation to have. Yeah, it is. And, 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 and yet there's science behind the discussion. And you're, you're right that in the political realm, people tend to get into camps and dig in. And uh, as we talked about in our, our earlier podcast on collaboration, what's needed here is a more scientific understanding of the competing priorities that, that our nation faces or a city or a state faces. How do we hit the sweet spot and balance those competing uh, priorities that, that we all wanna fulfill but that we may have individual biases toward one or the other. So how do, how do government organizations, how do businesses, how do uh, teams actually uh, prioritize and set those, those tolerances? And, that, and that'll be a great discussion, I think, for our next podcast when we get into organizational and individual tolerance of risk and recognizing that competing priorities always exist in the real world. Uh, we can't go in and say we only have one value or one organizational attribute. So how do we recognize uh, which ones we pay most attention to? And right. uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a much fuller discussion on that in the next podcast. All right. Okay, Paul, this is a good uh, segue to our next one. Uh, I had fun. I think we're going to have a lot more yeah. fun as we get into this. But uh, we'll join us for our next one where we're going to continue seeing and understanding risk, but then we're going to focus attention on uh, individual perception of risk, uh, risk intelligence, and then tolerance for risk, and how that relates to organizations who have perhaps different perceptions, uh, intelligence, and tolerances.